Okay. Well. If you've been around for a while, uh, you'll have heard you'll have heard a lot of this stuff. I was thinking there's probably probably the topic of renewal is the topic I've given the most sermons on, uh, which was a problem because I had a whole lot of old stuff to look back at. And so, as more than usual, I've got way too much uh, this morning. So I'm praying for the Holy Spirit editor. That's uh, in Second Thessalonians. Um, you can find that, no. But, um, but the, the, the topic of renewal is close to the heart of this church. This is why we exist and why we get out of bed in the morning is to join God in the renewal of all things. So it's important that our, our vision is sharpened and clarified. What, do we, what are we talking about when we say renewal? What does that mean and what does that not mean? And what kind of fresh imagination might the Holy Spirit want to be sparking in us and you about renewal and how to join in on that. So I think uh, even given this week, uh, having these themes in the background, um, we're we're aching and longing for renewal. It's a tricky word to know exactly what we're talking about. Um, And one of the the things renewal gets confused with, I would say, is reinvention. Uh, And so reinvention is a very uh, trendy thing, especially around fall, how to reinvent your life. So uh, to save you a Google search, I just want to give you uh, some uh, answers here, just just for free, ideas of how to reinvent yourself in fall 2018. Here are some some ways that I've found. Uh, The first is to create a vision board for your life. You could also say no to negative people, start a new career. This, this was a good one. Build a personal brand on social media. Some retail therapy. Maybe just change up your wardrobe. Here's the thing. I can change my location. I could even change my spouse. I can change my body. I could change my brand, change my school, change my roommate, change my location. I can do all of that and not be changed. Because reinvention is not renewal. And so how are they different? Let's go to Titus 3. There's a great text here at the end of um, this letter. In Titus 3, if you've got a a chair Bible beside you, let's go there and then just kind of uh, keep a thumb there because we're going to be there throughout the morning. Titus 3, verse 3. Let's listen here to God's Word together and consider renewal. Verse 3, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. 
These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to, to devote themselves to doing what is good. A few weeks ago, we talked about how throughout history, there is a great and mighty river. Talked about that river being the kingdom of God that flows toward the healing and restoration of all things. This is where the story of scripture leads, that love conquers death, a new heaven and earth are established, and the God of love and justice finally puts all things to rights. Our creator is carrying every corner of creation into this beautiful future. This is where the river is flowing. And we talked about one of Jesus' greatest all-time announcements. Behold, I am making all things new. All things new. That's the promise. That's the future. And if you've been around again, you know we've talked, we've talked about this often, but how the story of Scripture is a four-act story. Creation. How the world ought to be. Fall. How the world is. Redemption, how the world can be. Restoration, how the world will be. So in creation, in the beginning, God creates and brings the whole world into being. God is present and available. There's this great line in there that talks about how God was walking with the first humans in the cool of the day. That God is present. God's presence is available or in theological language, this is God's imminence. God is present in Eden. And so you go, well, is that the point? They're just going to hang out in Eden? Well, you know, you, have you ever wondered, like, what, what about the rest of the world? What was going on there? Well, God commissions Adam and Eve to act as stewards, as high priests in his temple, which is his whole creation, to go out and to carry creation forward, to go out and to expand Eden. So the original plan is for God's goodness and glory, God's presence to fill the whole world, for the whole world to become Eden, that God's presence can be known everywhere. I like how Nancy Piercy puts it. In Genesis, God gives what might be called the first job description. The first phrase, be fruitful and multiply, means to develop the social world, build families, churches, schools, cities, governments, laws. The second phrase, subdue the earth, means to harness the natural world, plant crops, build bridges, design computers, uh, and compose music. This passage is sometimes called the cultural mandate because it tells us that our original purpose was to create cultures, build civilizations, nothing less. And so in creation, we see humanity being given enormous dignity and worth and to be commissioned in God's to be God's partners in carrying creation forward. Act two, the fall. There's a rev revolution against the presence of God. We'd just rather do this without you. There's something outside of you, God, that I most need. And so for the first time in the story, it's not just the presence of God, the presence of creation and the presence of humans. We've got something totally new, and that's the pr presence of blame, deceit, and shame. 
first time it enters the story. And now all of that stuff gets smeared over everyone and everything. There's a new force, a new movement. Originally, the movement's supposed to be moving to carry creation forward. There's a new movement that's trying to undo that. It's called sin. And as you read through Genesis in the Old Testament, or just listen to your own life, you realize there's not just a fall, but it's like a series of dominoes, a series of falls falling in every direction. There's fractures and fissures in every relationship. Or as Brene Brown puts it, the cruelty culture we see today is about fighting shame with shame. It's just everywhere. So what's the solution? Third act, redemption. God shows that he's not going to let the world completely trend towards chaos and death. Wants to do something about all these dominoes falling. He's not just going to put the weight of that onto humans to reinvent like some sort of domino stoppage. Uh, but rather to come himself and to, with his own body, be crucified, let the dominoes come and fall on him, and he ends the game. Done. His death absorbs all of the sin. Scripture says he became, he who knew no sin became sin, absorbed all of that. But it wasn't just his death, it was his resurrection. A reversal, a reversal, a, a new creation uh, to, to say, no, it's not just about stopping this old order of decay, but to start reversing that towards the original intentions that God had for the world. And Colossians 1 then says, Stuff like this, that God was pleased for his fullness to dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on heaven or on earth. All things reconciled through his blood shed on the cross. All things, all atoms, all corner grocery stores, all giraffes, all father-son relationships, all spleens lungs, and amygdalas, all science, I'm seeing Alistair, so I'm going to say all dolphins, okay, all things, so it's a massive scope with a potent center, all things, potent center, Jesus Christ crucified and raised again. The fourth act is, re is restoration, the promise that all things will be brought back home, but not to Eden but to a new city, a new Jerusalem, the restoration of all things. So that's the story, of, the story of God, the story of Scripture. There's a couple other kind of counter stories that work against that story. And the first one we could just say is the half story. I don't know if I have a slide for that, do I? I'll take that as a no. Um, so the half story is uh, just... Um, and, and as I start explaining this, you, you may know it. But you, the half story is just the second and third act. It's fall and redemption. It's fall and redemption. Where you start the story really matters. If you start in Genesis 1, it's about creation. If you start in Genesis 3, it's about sin. And so the half story, or the two-act story, if you begin in Genesis 3, the story is primarily about the removal of sin. Mostly out of human souls. If you begin the story in Genesis 1, the story is about creation, which humanity is a part, and the restoration of it. 
very different stories. If the story starts in Genesis 3, it's mostly about what you're not. If it starts in Genesis 1, it's about what you are. Original sin, chapter 3. Original blessing, chapter 1. Different starting points. The half story is about escape and evacuation. Try and tell the story of Jesus to get souls saved so that they can believe in heaven and when all of this is going to burn, they'll, get to, they'll escape with you. It's an evacuation plan. Uh, not actually in the gospel. The big story is about the restoration, including a person's soul and the whole of their entire life. Salvation, at least the word in the Gospels. Sozo is whole, wholeness, whole restoration. So the half is about saving souls and the big is about reconciling all things. So what's the big story? It's renewal through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for the entire cosmos. It's massive. Cornelius Plantinga, I quote him just because when's the last time you've heard from a Cornelius? He says, in a thousand ways God will gather what's scattered, rebuild what's broken, restore what has been emptied out by centuries of waste and fraud. In a thousand ways God will put right what's wrong with his glorious creation. That's the story. That's the the framework. And that framework or that schema is written into the fabric of the universe. It's a cheat sheet if you want to know how things are going. It's reality. It's a contested one, but it's reality. This is how things are going to go. And the notion that history is going somewhere, that it's not just bound to repeat, the idea of progress is a Christian notion. That hopefully, despite the odds, this story will get better. It's going somewhere. That's a Christian notion. And so there's a secular version of the story that works off of that same framework. This Secular cultures are shaped by the same story. Take on this schema. I was reading about Richard Dawkins, who really rose to fame after 9-11. And one of his most famous talks was, I think, either the day after or the two days after 9-11. And uh, talked about, really, the, the problem to progress is religion. And since that time, many people have challenged Richard, saying, Richard, there's a morality to your work, even as an atheist. There's a deep morality here, and you've inherited that from the Christian framework. <laughs> and he, and uh, someone said, Richard, you've got to admit it. You're a cultural Christian. And he says, okay, fine. I'm a cultural Christian. I've, I've inherited that framework. I've inherited that hope that this is going somewhere. Progress is a Christian notion. And yet, a secular version of the story is similar. It wants a future hope, but as one author puts it, wants the kingdom, but not the king. Wants progress, but not the presence of God. And so if we were to kind of put some different words in there, we could say this, like the, the end, well, so the beginning, well, we're not sure. We're unsure of origins. Uh, sin, fall, well, in our secular vocabulary, we, we probably wouldn't use the word sin, but we certainly would acknowledge the presence of things like bigotry, prejudice, misogyny, racism, oppression. We can say, yes, there is something wrong with the word world, so I just put one word in there. 
But then the question of what do we do about that? What's the solution? How will the dominoes stop falling? That's the big question. And often it's just it's some version of reinvention. And that hopefully at some point we will be able to coexist, that we will arrive at utopia. And I think that's why one of the, a week like this week is so painful. Because we realize, I think we're further from utopia than we, we maybe thought. I thought we were further than this. I thought, I, I thought we were past this. I thought progress had moved further. And in many ways, we're in a moment where there's all kinds of covers just being ripped off, and we're seeing the nasty underbelly of like, like we're in the need of an exorcism culturally of misogyny. And so we're seeing this, and we're confronted with, oh my word, the dominoes keep falling. What are we going to do? So the anxiety's high. Have you felt that this week? It's because it's reinvention, it's not renewal. And so the fruit of this, Marshall Berman says, to be modern is to find ourselves in an environment that promises us adventure, power, joy, growth, transformation of ourselves and the world, and at the same time that threatens to destroy everything we know and everything we are. High anxiety, not able to push to the utopia that we thought we'd get. Jamie Smith says that in the secular age, people who are religious have doubts, and equally, people who are secular are doubting their own story. So let's hear Titus 3, 3 to 8 again then. If the whole story is about renewal, that's what it's all pointing towards. Let's hear this again. At one time, listen to the dominoes here. We too were foolish disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But, I've told you about Ruth Miller before, I think. Ruth Miller was one of my Bible teachers. I just saw her last week. And Ruth Miller, when she was teaching us Scripture, she would always say, pay attention to the big butts in Scripture. And then the corners of her mouth would tilt up with this illicit, naughty joke. Um, pay attention to the big butts in Scripture. This is one of those. This is a big butt. All of that, the flow, being hated and hating one another. It's where it's moving. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us. How? Through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, through the river crashing onto my doorsteps, whom he poured out on us generously through Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. He goes on to say, these things need to be stressed. We need to be reminded of this. We're reminded again, this is not reinvention. This is, as Paul says, not through righteous things we had done. I didn't finally get the life hack. I didn't vaguely make the world better. So how does it happen? By the Holy Spirit. This is how renewal happens, by the Holy Spirit. 
I want to very quickly, I know I'm erring on the side of teaching this morning more than preaching, but if you'll stay with me, I want to give us a, a brief framework then for renewal and then cut, consider some applications. Are we still good to keep going? Yeah? Okay. So a brief framework, and I, ours in church, I think this is, this is important certainly for me, I think for us. What is our imagination when we hear that? Joining God in the renewal of all things. What do I imagine renewal is? So we've established whether you agree or not. It's different than reinvention. That's by the Holy Spirit. And now here's a quick framework. All words starting with R. You're welcome. Okay, so uh, the first word is regeneration. And regeneration is... Uh, it's an older theological word, maybe one that you don't use a lot. The doctrine of regeneration is this, first in story form. John 3, Nicodemus, is a religious professional, a cultural elite, approaches Jesus in the nighttime because he's embarrassed to ask his questions, comes to Jesus with curiosity. Jesus welcomes him and basically says this to him, Nicodemus, your passionate desire to begin again you can't give yourself a new heart. Only God can do that. You need to be born again. Nicodemus says, that's impossible. Am I supposed to like, come out of my, re-enter my mother's womb? And Jesus just, he's like, oh, you're one of Israel's teachers and you don't understand these things? Which I think is pretty hardcore. Because like, Jesus, that's a hard metaphor of being born again. It's hard to wrap your mind around. But that's the point. He's like, this isn't of human origin. This isn't through reinvention, it's through regeneration. It's, it's a work of God that causes a person to wake up, for the lights to go on, to recognize the goodness of God. Paul says in Ephesians 2, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but, here's another one, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's been, it is by grace you have been saved. So the fundamental shift in regeneration is not about making a bad person good or an immoral person semi-moral, but a dead person alive. That is, that is, um, that is offensive, I think, in our, in our time. But this is where the gospel offends human ingenuity. You're saying, I am apart from Christ, I am dead in my sins and transgressions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Regeneration, dead to alive. After that, there's a, a movement of restoration. God begins to restore you, restore mindsets, God begins to heal past trauma. Or to use scriptural language, God gives beauty for ashes. The renewal of all things starts happening in you. Paul says it this way, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. So Christian is defined by newness. New birth, new heart. It's a new creature, new life. New desires, has a new family, new service, a new struggle, a new name, and a new hope. Remember, I, when I was 19, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't come from a tradition where you're supposed to give your life to God. But I just did that out of desperation. My friend Phil helped me in a, a moment of weakness just to surrender my life to God. 
and some weird stuff started happening to me. I started freaking out myself and those around me because I went from a 19-year-old who smoked a ton of weed in a Boston pizza kitchen. We'd smoke weed by the pizza ovens because it had good ventilation. Uh, great management, by the way. Um, manager was also in there with us. So went from you know a lot of weed, a lot of substance abuse, a lot of uh, destructive patterns with other people to someone who had a new appetite for scripture, was starting to pray, freaking my mom out, saying, Mom, have you even read the book of Romans? And she's like, who is this? What have you done with my son? My friends didn't know what to do. What was happening? I was starting to be restored. I learned I had to start actively repenting and working on restoring relationships, forming apologies. This is restoration. And then it moves into reconciliation. Your, your, the, the renewal of all things isn't just about you and your relationship to God and not just about you and your relationship to yourself or your past or to Scripture, but it starts extending out to other people, to those who are not like you, to those who you think there's no possibility of relationship here. Paul says it this way, if anyone's in Christ, new creation has come, old is gone, the new is here. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. Now it's your turn. I want you to be part of this. You're supposed supposed to originally be partners in extending Eden. Now I've restored you so you can start restoring relationships. I like how Eugene Cho puts it, everyone loves the idea of reconciliation until it involves truth-telling, confessing, repenting, dismantling, forgiving, and peacemaking. This is hard, hard work. And that moves into reformation, where all things, all relationships, and then all industries, all habits, how I order my life, the social dimensions and implications of my life start getting renewed, start reforming in and through me. I like how uh, Rodney Stark, historian, reflects on how this reformation happens. He says, Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with urgent urban problems. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. It was out of this movement where we got hospitals. This is Reformation. And the last one is revival. Revival. And my favorite definition for this is an acceleration of the normal work of the Spirit. This is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is where the river of God finds and floods culture. Or in history, we'll call this spiritual awakening. We see this in biblical history. We see this even in Vancouver's history. 
our last real spiritual awakening revival, which David's dad was part of, and there's amazing stories of the Jesus People movement here in Vancouver in the 70s. That'd be the, that'd probably the last time where we've had an outpouring of the, the Holy Spirit where there's just an awakening to the reality of God. So, to summarize, you still with me? Okay, renewal is multifaceted, and it includes all five of these. Regeneration, restoration, reconciliation, reformation, and revival. It involves, of course, what you do at work and vocation. And it involves what you do uh, in your time off. And it involves your heart and your practices. So renewal, then, we could say, secondly, is holistic. It's spiritual, social, and cultural renewal. Renewal is a work of the Holy Spirit. This is God's work. It's a renewal of the Holy Spirit. And that renewal always moves. We see this in history. Always moves from the micro to the macro. It goes personal to the collective. So if we were to look at these cultures and the the normal flow, you see the arrows, that would probably be how the the dominoes usually flow. There's decay, decline, apathy. And we see uh, in the circles, the bigger um, groupings. We've got individuals, leaders, micro-communities. Those could be your rugby team. That could be your neighborhood group. Uh, Just a smaller grouping. We've got churches. We've got wider movements, social movements, and then we've got cultures. It's never culture, but cultures, many different cultures. Next slide. And so the way renewal usually, actually not usually, always flows is it starts personal. I like how uh, Ray Orland put it. There's something deep inside us that diminishes past facts and magnifies present uncertainties. Somehow God's faithfulness in the past doesn't carry weight for long. And pretty soon we start feeling as unloved and alone as ever. It's just the way we are. It's why we need constant renewal. There is always some plausible alternative to trusting in God, something to take our eyes off of God. So personal renewal leads to collective renewal. If something new is going to happen through us, it has to happen in us. And to put it another way, the breadth of your impact is tied to the depth of your intimacy. The breadth of your impact. I want to see God renew things in our day and in this city. The, the breadth of that is tied to the depth of our intimacy with the one who makes all things new. And that then keeps moving to revival, where movements and cultures begin to be renewed. Now... I think more or less we know this. For many of us, this is review. You say, okay, yep, yeah, I know that's the story. I know it's the renewal of all things. I don't, I don't know where your heart is this morning as you've heard the story, if there's, if there's excitement, if there's, ah, trying to stay awake here. Uh, where, wherever you're at, I think we could mostly say we know this. We know that the promise is, behold, I'm making all things new. And maybe the question is, okay, but how come we don't see more of that? Sure would like to see more renewal. Jesus, in Matthew 9, says this, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. 
for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, and the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Now, this is one of Jesus' most trickiest parables. There's a real wide range of interpretations, but I'll give you a quick one. The old and the new don't mix well, according to Jesus. So this is in three of the Gospels, this parable. And in another Gospel, it's, it's combined with where Jesus gives three images of how it's impossible to combine the new thing he's doing with the old thing. So he says, you can't combine funerals and weddings. That's the first one. Those just don't go together. You can't combine a funeral and a wedding. Second one is, you can't be gloomy while celebrating a marriage feast. I guess it depends on where you fit in with the marriage feast. If that was a potential partner, you could be gloomy. But we'll, we'll get it. We take it. Okay, you can't be gloomy while celebrating a marriage feast. And then the third, you, you can't just attach the new onto the old, like a, a new piece of fabric onto the old because it'll tear. Or you can't just put the new inside the old wine into old wineskins. And we've got growlers today, but in Jesus' time, wineskins would hold the wine, and they're made from tanned animals. And over time, these wineskins would stretch beyond their limit. They're brought to capacity. They've lost their flexibility. They've become brittle. And because new wine is still fermenting, new wine is, is going to expand Old skins have lost the ability to expand. They can't hold the newness. So what is Jesus talking about here? Jesus is talking about the resistance I have and you have to newness. He's talking about the desire to control the newness. The inability to hold the newness. I, can, I know the story is the renewal of all things. And I, in fact, love that story. And I want to be a part of it. But to be honest, when Jesus says, Behold, I'm making all things new, my common response is, Behold, I'll be keeping all things the same. Some version of that. Like, I, I want new for them, just not for me. Or I'll take the new as long as it fits well, like a glove, preferably, into my old. Not interested in bursting the old. Doing away with the old. Just maybe adding on to the old. No, Jesus, no, no, no. It's about resistance to the newness, desire to control the newness, and the inability to hold it. So how might we be hearing Jesus' words this morning, the artisan church? And that's what I've been trying to listen in on the last uh, number of months. And to be honest, I, I'm not totally sure. I haven't gotten to the bottom of this. We'll have to discern that together. But I think there's something here for us at, on a new season, a fall season, as we take this mandate to join God in the renewal of all things and to remember that all the newness God desires to bring requires a new container. A new container. So what's the container? Well, I don't know. That you'll have to answer that. I don't know what the container is for you. Is it your schedule? How you order time? A mindset, a prejudice, an organizational structure, a habit, 
a stronghold in your mind? I don't know. I just skipped three pages of notes, so you know here, and we're rounding on to the end. This is, this is one thing I've been thinking about, about the container, and that is the culture. Culture as container. Now, we know as a church that renewal is our mandate. In the last year, we've, we've been looking at how the way we join God in the renewal of things is by practicing the way of Jesus. Spent a year on that. But culture, one definition of culture is our collective heart. So culture is the heart we have around those things. Culture is about the way we give ourselves to that story. And I'm wondering if what we need in the culture of my own heart and the culture of this church is a culture of desperate hunger. See, desperation is be, being utterly willing to upend my life to lay hold of another thing. Desperation is, is being unconcerned about the opinions of others. To be desperate is to be foolish and fearless and uncouth and more than a little bit wild. Yeah. And, and to be hunger, hungry is, is you don't, if you're hungry, you don't dabble you don't sample, you scarf. You, you say, I, I have a fierceness to this ache, which makes me forceful. Now, last week, Matthew and the band were leading us in worship. And I was so thankful for their leadership, and these lyrics came up on the screen. Spirit break out, break our walls down. Spirit break out, heaven come down. King Jesus, you're the name we're lifting high. Your glory shaking up the earth and skies. Revival, we want to see your kingdom here. We will want to see your kingdom here. Now, many Sundays, when we're, we're singing prayers, there's always going to be a gap between our lived experience and our idealized one of what we're longing for. But last week, this song just struck me. Uh, these are really big words. These are enormous words to pray. These are massive things to say to God. I wondered, do we want this? I had the sense as we were singing that we are a group of people who have come into this room with all kinds of longings. And the lid was still on our longings. And so I chickened out. But uh, as the band was going to wrap up the song, I thought, I, I should come up. I think we can't just gloss over this moment. I think we need to press into this moment here. And so I almost got up, grabbed the mic, and, and led us to pray and, and, and wanted to call us to name our hungers, to bring them to God, that it's okay to be desperate, and to collectively say to God, God, we need you. Our world is groaning for you with real pain and real heartache. Some of it's ours. And we're here. We want to know that you are here, God. We want to meet you. We want, we want our eyes to behold you. We want to see that you are what we most long for. And we want to be the kingdom of priests that you say we are. 
to bring with us the concerns and cries of the world, to lift them to you, to cry out on behalf of our friends and our colleagues and our families for renewal that your kingdom would come in Vancouver. And we want to believe that by our meeting with you that things can change, that we can change, that you in fact can revive us. But I didn't pray that. Why? I don't know. It's chicken. Maybe not desperate enough. I wonder if our container as a church needs to change. The culture, our collective heart, we know why we exist, but our heart around this stuff needs to become more desperate, uncouth, less middle class, more wild, more I don't care how I look in my desperation. To close, let's just share a quick story. I've shared this before, but it's, I think, a good reminder. A friend who's a pastor in Kelowna, and he shares the story of coming to the communion table. And in this particular church, because they're in downtown Kelowna, they've got a lot of street-entrenched people that are part of the community. A lot of street-entrenched people that come in and out on a Sunday gathering. And they were at the table, and they were serving, like we do, with lines. There's an order, right? You wait your turn. You wait in line to come to the table. Friends saw this woman come in off the street and made a beeline for the table. Uh, he said he, he just could see she, she'd had quite a night. Tired, weary, worn out. Who knows what happened that night. She comes to the table, totally buds in line, total disregard for the lineup, says, you know, I'm... Whatever's compelling her, I got to get to the front of the line, rips off the piece of bread. He says, you remember seeing her dip it into the wine, and in her haste and in her wildness, she plunged her fingers, her cuticles went into the wine. He said, as she did that, he looked up, and there was a woman, a very classy dressed woman in the front row who did this. <laughs> like, oh, oh, that's not how we do it here. We did cuticles in the wine. Hmm. <laughs> And she pulls out the bread, and it's soaked with so much, bread, so much wine that it's just pouring down her arm and off her elbow and making a mess all over the place. And she scarfs the body and the blood. And he said, that woman taught me how to come to the table. I don't saunter. I don't swagger. I come in desperate. I'm desperately hungrier, hungry for the renewal of all things in me this week. I'm hungry for the renewal of all things systemically. I, I, I'm hungry for this. We need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We need renewal. And so we get to come this morning yet again with this practice that trains us how to be desperately hungry how to be more than a little bit wild. So I want to invite you to the table, invite the band up.